Bistex CEO Conversation Show, the show where we engage industry leaders to share insights into how they run and grow their businesses. Today, our conversation is with Seth Raven, the chairman, CEO, and founder of Rimini Street. Now, Rimini Street was founded in 2005 and is the leading third-party provider of enterprise support services. Now, Seth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Brian. Now, Seth, could you start by giving us an overview of Rumini Street's business and how you started this? Sure. Uh, think, think about us as a, a company that provides extraordinary IT solutions by extraordinary people. Uh, in many ways, think of us as the McKinsey of IT solutions. Companies call us in when they have enterprise software challenges and they want to move their business forward strategically operationally financially and they're looking for a path and we'll provide a very smart path to get to their goals and that will include replacing the annual maintenance uh, uh, services that the vendors may be providing like an oracle or sap it could be providing AMS services where we run the systems on behalf of the customer, could be security or interoperability. So there's a lot of ways that we can help customers achieve their IT goals as well as their strategic goals. Okay, so you started this business in 2005, but really you've been an entrepreneur since you were 13 years old and you've had some exits. Walk us through your entrepreneurial journey. Well, I think I was always one of those folks who wanted to challenge the status quo. I always felt that there was a better way. There's always a better way. There's always an evolution. There's always a breakthrough that can happen. You can disrupt any industry. And I just think from a very young age, even when I was 13 and creating my first software products, I saw the opportunity to create competition and choice and really challenge others who, who were owning the marketplace. And that followed me all the way through my days uh, up to joining PeopleSoft and uh, staying there uh, until we hit about 10,000 people and building out uh, some great software and competing against Oracle and SAP, where they were the giants in the industry. So it was always about doing things better, faster and smarter than somebody else who was bigger. And I think that whole David and Goliath approach uh, has been in my soul for, for many years. And I took that into building out the, the Rimini Street business where we've challenged uh, large players like Oracle and SAP. And, and what others was that like, like in 2005 set? Because you came from that business. You, you worked in, in, in PeopleSoft business. That was a huge business, 95% margins. I don't think they took too kindly to you coming in and disrupting that, 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 that nice little earner that they were having. Well, I, I think when you're playing a David and Goliath battle where you're challenging people who are making a lot of money and who own your market, I think that you're always going to have a very, very good challenge. I mean, with Oracle, we've been in court for 11 years, maybe one of the largest U.S. federal cases gone on for 11 years and will go on likely for years longer. 
but this is what it takes when you challenge the status quo and you want to change things. There will always be people that stand in your way. And give us a perspective. You claim up to 95% savings for customers. Give us some insights into the benefits of outsourcing versus doing it in-house versus getting a third-party provider like yourself to come in and take over that vendor contract. Well, I think for most people, if you really look at the IT shops, they're not staffed to take on all support requirements. These systems are so large, they can require 100 to 200 different people and specialties. And that's just not cost efficient for companies to have on staff, unless you're maybe one of the five or 10 largest companies in the world. So in general, you're gonna have to find a vendor solution to that. What we did was we looked at it and said, we can provide a better service at a much lower price point because we were willing to accept a more reasonable profit. And we hire people with more engineering experience, we pay them more, and in return, the client gets a higher service experience, which is why we have, we believe, the highest service satisfaction rate in the industry, 4.9 plus out of 5.0, with 5.0 being excellent. So we're very client focused, and we came out with a service offering that we believe was a better offering overall for clients. And it's been successful. We, we've signed over 4,000 clients. Uh, they're serviced in over 150 countries, and we have operations in 22 countries now, including Malaysia. Now, so if you if you look back at, at, at the, the savings that you sort of generate for customers, I'm thinking because, again, I'm from an enterprise uh, uh, software space itself, you will extend the life cycle of the existing ERP and CRM applications because the vendors are always pushing them to, to change. Second thing is also pushing back upgrades uh, to the versions. And I suppose the third thing then is, especially in today's, today's world, migration to the cloud. That will bring a lot of efficiencies. Am I, am I pushing the right buttons here? It's really your key value proposition. Well, I, I think if you look at the, the center, Brian, the real truth is what we bring customers is control. They take back control of their IT assets. As our CFO clients would like to talk about, assets have a useful life. That useful life is often cut short because the software vendors want to move you forward. And not just the software vendors, most of their suppliers. Because if I move to a new version, I probably need more hardware. I'm going to need more consultants to change out the software. We call it the ecosystem. Everybody wants the customers to spend more money. If they're not spending money, nobody's making money. So Rumini Street comes in and we say, you don't have to move off that software unless it makes sense for your business. It's an ROI driven decision, not one that's made by the software vendor or your other vendors pushing you. We return control to the company to decide what assets they're going to use how long the useful life is for them. And for some companies, we're literally saving them billions of dollars that would have to be spent on upgrades, migrations, new projects, new hardware that they just don't need. And instead, what they're doing is they're taking that savings 
and they're investing it in real digital transformation in areas of the business that will drive better competitive advantage and growth for them. Okay, Seth, I wanna zoom in now uh, on the Asia Pacific region. Mm -hmm. Who are your key customers in the region and what verticals uh, have you seen the most traction? Well, we, we support companies as big as Hyundai uh, on a global basis. Uh, we, of course, have Proton in Malaysia, uh, Cellcom, your largest cell provider groups. Uh, these, are, these are all customers of Rumini Street. We've been extremely successful in Asia with hundreds of customers, probably more in Japan than anywhere else. And so many of these companies that people know as household names are using Rumini Street to lower their cost of operation, get better results out of their enterprise software. And at the same time, they're using this capital to invest in their business. And we've seen this during the pandemic in an accelerated way. Uh, you know, we were mentioning earlier, you and I talking about how, how fascinating it is in Asia Pacific, which is very advanced technically, but business practices such as digital signatures were very, very far behind other areas of the world because of their special practice and contract management and papers. And so we've watched all of that now accelerate during the pandemic as one of the silver linings to this terrible, terrible toll on the human race. Now, I wanna uh, zoom in on a specific area that you are very successful in airlines mm -hmm. because airlines have been devastated by the pandemic. What sort of challenges that do you think now as we see light at the end of the tunnel do airlines face and how has Rumini Street helped these companies, especially in the digital transformation journey? We've been helping many, many airlines around the world on a global basis. And, and of course, uh, airlines like Korean Air and Philippine Airlines in, 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 uh, in Asia, we've been helping them streamline costs, uh, improve efficiencies and innovation funding because as everyone knows, the airline industry is very expensive with, with passengers down. They have to be much more efficient to lower their passenger costs per mile. They have to lower operating costs. They have to be a very well-run business. They need to streamline baggage handling. They need to streamline passenger management. All of these things are being funded in these airlines that we're servicing because we're saving money on their back-end core ERP and enterprise software. And they're taking the, that funds that they didn't have a lot of, and they're using that to streamline the operation and make these investments. So that's why I said Ramini Street in many ways, we are seen as a funding source because these companies cannot go back to their board and simply ask for more money. That cash does not exist, which means they have to get it from existing operations through improvements and innovation and the way that they allocate cost in IT. So again, it's more around, uh, rather than business as usual, allocating the money that was supposed to go into a new version into real transformation work Correct. and then squeezing the efficiencies out of the existing systems. That's correct. Now, what do you think that uh, with with uh, data, data being the new oil, where do you think 
that innovation is going to come in in your space? Well, if you look at a lot of our clients, what they're doing is they're taking that money and they're funding analytics. They're buying snowflake systems. They're replacing old data warehousing systems where it didn't give them the, the data that they need to run modern analytics. They need passenger analytics for, for the airlines. They need to understand data that helps them support decisions. And this is where, of course, we've all talked for years about the difference between reporting and then having data that supports actual decisions that people can use. We are very much in the next phase of data analytics. That data and then getting to predictive data. As we all know, airlines frequently use passenger data to understand how they're going to be overbooked. What's the likely chance that somebody's not going to show up for a flight so that they can sell that seat twice, knowing that someone's not going to show up? They do this. This is the structures. They've been using these algorithms for, for, for decades. They get more and more insight today. They need more data to make sure they know what size plane should we assign to that route so that we can get maximum value and return on that investment for that flight. As we've all seen, they're moving to smaller planes. These are all actions being taken through analytics and understanding those passenger loads, demand loads, and likely cancellations to understand how many people they're likely to move. So I, I think this is the kind of investment that we are helping fund and allowing companies to focus on while we take care of those big core ERP and enterprise systems. Now, Seth, the pandemic has changed the way senior management, especially technology management, views investments in tech. And we've talked about the savings and stuff. But what are the shifts that you've in priorities and focus that you've noticed in IT leadership in the past 12 months? And then obviously, well, 24 months, it was a very different world. Mm -hmm. But what about the past 12 months as the shock of the pandemic has worn off mm -hmm. and they're starting to look at the opportunities? Where mm -hmm. do you see the focus now on priorities in 2022? Well, we said during the pandemic, I, I spoke in, in many different countries around, you really went through three phases. The first one was shock uh, and it was survive. Your, your revenues dropped dramatically. And if you don't get your costs in line, you will bleed to death in cash. So everyone had to adjust cost to match the reality of reduced revenue. Then you went through, you went through, you went through a stabilized phase. And then those companies who are going to be leaders as we move through the pandemic into a post-pandemic world, they went into a thrive. They went and looked at the changes and they said, how do we adjust our business to be more profitable, to, to take advantage of the world that we're in in the pandemic? Not just survive, but we want to thrive, which means we have to take a look at how the opportunity has changed. And how do we adjust our business to, to really play off that opportunity? And that's where we've been helping customers through all three phases, first to control costs, then moving through to stabilize, and then helping them use these new processes, use the new savings that we're bringing, the stability to those backend systems to move and shift workers, for example, onto other products. And I'll give you an example. In the banking industry, the banks are all moving towards, they've got to do a great internet bank offering. 
That's where the deposits are. We have banks around the world like HSBC, where we've helped them stop focusing on back-end ERP in the enterprise planning and the HR systems. Instead, they're able to focus their team now on building those great internet apps that you're going to work on your phone. Because if you don't have a great app on your phone, then you're not gonna bank with HSBC. You're gonna bank with someone else who's got a much easier application that you can use and you're comfortable. So it's about focusing on the things that matter in competitive advantage and winning for growth. And you know, Seth, I wanna to add to that because I've seen that shift particularly in the last six to nine months. As we've had guests on the show, the realization has come in that the reason for being for digital banks three or four years ago, mm -hmm. they were going to disrupt everything. Now the legacy banks have put in the, the systems in place mm -hmm. to compete very effectively. It's not a case where they're going to be steamrolled by digital banks. They have an effective offering because as you just pointed out, they've now reprioritized and focused mm -hmm. on all of those the good stuff that the digital banks were supposed to have as USPs. Mm -hmm. Or if, if they'd gone the other direction, they would have had to focus on the vendors, upgrades, migrations, which wouldn't have generated value. And we see the same thing in retail. You have retailers now, it's all about omni-channel. You want to make sure that you can have both a store and online. I can buy it online. I can pick it up at the store. I can buy it in the store and I can return it uh, from my house. That is what's changed the dynamics in retail dramatically. And those who don't have all those options are not going to be as successful. People used to think that brick and mortar stores were dead. That if you did, that if you had a brick and mortar store and you had all that cost, you couldn't compete. Now you see a lot of those brick and mortar stores doing very well because they offer online and the brick and mortar in a combined option. So we are enabling all of those changes because they're funding it with the internal items and they're being able to focus on those projects without having to focus on projects that just aren't going to change competitive advantage and they're not going to fund growth. Now, Seth, I wanna zoom in now on you and, and the questions around leadership. Now, you've been growing Rimini Street since 2005 and you've grown a global business. What are the three things that you think that you've done really well? I think you have to start off with a workable vision. You have to know what it is you're setting out to achieve. If you just sort of stumble into it, you're not going to have the goals set right. You have to know where you're going. You have to understand that, that mission. Um, the second item I would say is you have to remember that companies are built on people. The hardest thing in the world is managing thousands of people in all different countries and cultures and languages to build a global company. It's not easy. You have to deal with all of those challenges just in the formation and execution of your vision. And third, you have to have a product people want. Uh, I, you know, I was in the software business for a long time, and I was one of those people who used to try and force customers to do upgrades and migrations. That was one of my jobs as an executive, was to push that on people. And I really came to the conclusion when I was at PeopleSoft 
that I never ever wanted to be in a business again where I had to force people to do something they didn't naturally want to do. So I, I changed that and I decided I would only sell products and services that people actually wanted and they could see value in. And that was really core to me because that allowed us to go out there because we knew people wanted the service. We knew people wanted what we were offering. I just had to convince them that I had the best offering in that space for them to make that decision and support that decision well. So I really do think that proper mission, understanding a, a people business, a business is about people and, and having a product that people want are sort of the three keys to success. And what do you think you would have done differently if you had to start over? If I had to start over, I would have hired a lot more lawyers to begin with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, I, I sort of saw that coming, actually. Larry <laughs> Ellison is not an easy person to go uh, face to face with. Well, I, I have a lot of respect for Larry Ellison. I mean, look at the business they built a $40 billion business. As an entrepreneur, you have to respect that amazing accomplishment. I have differences on the way we think about how to treat customers. I have differences on what we offer customers, but that's why competition is so great in a marketplace that we can offer our different wares and customers can make a choice if you have a level playing field where everyone gets to choose. There's a reason we have 200 different car models around the world because not one is the right for everyone. And competition and open markets and choice is a wonderful thing in a consumer world. And we can disagree on approach. We can disagree on the offerings. Wonderful. Let's go to market and let's each bring our wares and, and let our clients choose which one is the right one for them. Now, what advice would you give? So because you've had a couple of exits. You've been an entrepreneur since you were 13 years old. What advice could you share with entrepreneurs who are scaling their businesses globally? And there are a lot of companies either in North America coming to Asia or Asia looking at the world. Scaling is a completely different approach than entrepreneurship. And if you look at where Ramini Street is now in 22 countries of operation, 1700 employees, we are at that phase where you make a transition between the entrepreneurial company, which means the original folks from PeopleSoft and here that started up this business from a sitting on a cardboard box, uh, you know, using the, the wireless at Starbucks to communicate with our first prospects because we didn't have our own wireless. That is a different phase than when you reach over a thousand people and thousands of clients then you start bringing in your scaling class of executive. And we've been doing that for the last few years. Now, scaling executives are not the type that start with a company with 10 employees or, or work on a cardboard box. They are specialists at taking a successful business and understanding that scaling from 1,000 or 2,000 customers to 10,000 customers is a completely different set of skills. And recognizing that as an entrepreneur, knowing the difference between the entrepreneurial, let's just get it done and figure it out versus the scalers, which have a different approach. It's a more methodical approach. You have to have both when you make that transition. And some entrepreneurs never make the transition to scale. They can't recognize the difference in operations, the difference in the executives. 
And we are in that phase where you change out some of your entrepreneurs and they need to go start new companies and work in startups, but they're not good in big companies and big operations with a lot of complexity like a public company. It's been a fascinating conversation, Seth, but before we leave, any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Well, as I mentioned on the pandemic, I think the pandemic having taken an uh, incalculable toll on the human race has been one of the most exciting silver linings that we've seen in the world of business and technology as we've watched governments, including Japan, which was very slow to evolve in technology at a government level, has now seen the light on, on digital transformation and is now leading uh, the business world in setting goals for innovation. And so I think we've watched an amazing two years of transformation that has probably accelerated 10 years of what would have taken on a natural course. And I think for all business leaders to really embrace what we've gotten to the positive out of all of this business transformation that's taken place, having our workforces, having to work from home, having to be able to move processes when everyone's not in an office, it's really driven some very, very exciting acceleration in the world of, of digital transformation. And I'm excited to see where it goes in the coming years. Now, Seth, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show. My pleasure. And I, I look forward to returning to global travel like everyone else, hopefully later in 2022. Me too. I'm Brian Fernandez, and I've been speaking to Seth Raven, the chairman and CEO and co-founder of Rimini Street on Vistech's CEO Conversation Show. This video and podcast will be on our various social media platforms, as well as our website, www.biztech.asia. Please like and subscribe to our various platforms. Thank you very much for tuning in.